Acts chapter 9. Hey, if you're new to church, you've heard the name Jesus before. You may have heard names like David and Abraham, and you've probably heard Paul. Maybe you don't even know why you heard that name before, Paul. Well, the reason is that you and I are Christians today in large part because of the work and ministry of a guy named Paul. He was a missionary to Gentiles, non-Jews, like most of us in this room. And he also wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. Okay, so you didn't know Paul. That's how you've heard the name before. But the first time we meet him, he's called by a different name. He's called Saul. I want to read his story too. This is Acts chapter 9. It's a little longer. Hang with me. Meanwhile, Saul, who we'll later know as Paul, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and about all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And places in his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished. And they asked, well, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? That is the name of Jesus. <clears throat> and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful. And he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is, is the Messiah. Let me pray for us. God, would you open up your word to us this morning? Would you pour your spirit out on us and help us to see the truth that is Jesus Christ on which our lives rest? I pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. And P.S., we wouldn't mind if the Grizzlies won today. All right. I'm going to get you out of here before then, I promise. Have you ever, have you ever repurposed something in your house? Something that was made for one purpose, and now you're using it for something totally different. Have you ever done this in your house? My dad, I grew up, my dad drank Folgers coffee out of those 10 Folgers coffee cans. You remember this? So eventually in our house, everything was stored in a Folgers coffee can. You know, like screws and nails and socks and flour and sugar. It was all in Folgers coffee cans. Or I'm going to tell this. I told this in early service, and I admitted in early service, my dad was going to be so mad. He texted me. He was a little upset about it. But he told me I could throw him under the bus for the glory of God. In my dad's workshop outside, he used to take his old underwear and turn it into uh, rags for the shop, work rags, right? So old whitey tidies were his shop rags. I I have this visual image of my dad underneath the car changing the oil and him saying, Eric, hand me a rag. And me looking at the rags and saying, no. You know, like... You're on your own. You know what I'm talking about? Repurposing something. Uh, Russ and I were Googling repurposing around the house and found some of these pictures. Check out things that people have repurposed in their house. Look at this, a piano turned into a bookshelf. Isn't that awesome? That's incredible. Or look at this one. This is, so those are pop tabs from the top of a Coke bottle turned into a purse. Isn't that crazy? Who has that kind of time? They don't have kids. I promise you that. All right, this is a TV, old TV turned into aquarium. You may have a TV like that in your attic. Why haven't you made it into an aquarium? Why haven't you done that yet? Or let's see the next one, I think. This is my favorite. A bike turned into a pedestal for a sink? I asked Lindsay if we could do it. She said no. But I'm still hopeful that someday we can. Okay, like you look at all those, and admittedly, those are a little bit more challenging to repurpose than underwear, okay? But here's a question I want to ask you. What, What would it take to repurpose a person? To repurpose a person, what would that take? Like as hard as those might be to repurpose, you sense it would be infinitely more difficult to repurpose a person. And yet that is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 9. In an instant, a man is completely, completely repurposed, repurposed. He goes from Saul, the persecutor of the early church, to Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And immediately in Acts chapter 9, he's still known as Saul, but eventually he's going to become known by a completely different name. And let me just clarify here, he's not given a new name. Paul was his, his Gentile name. It was the name that Gentiles would have called him. And so as Paul's ministry moves from Jews, Saul being a Jewish name, to Gentiles, he just becomes known by his Gentile name. But the fact that we remember this guy, we're introduced to him as one man and we remember him as a different man is this reminder that this guy was totally, completely repurposed. And I wanna give you a sense of how dramatic this is, okay? The first time we meet Saul, it's actually not here in Acts chapter nine. Does anybody remember where it is? It's Acts chapter 7, the very end of Acts chapter 7, when the first Christian martyr is being killed, Stephen. He's being stoned to death for what he believes about Jesus. And all the men who are throwing the rocks at him take off their coats and jackets so they can throw those rocks, and they give them to this guy named Saul. Told that Saul's there holding all their coats, giving his approval to the end. That's 758 of Acts, if you're an underliner. Acts 8, verse 3, Saul then begins to destroy the church. 
dragging Christians into prison. And then by the time we catch back up to Saul in Acts chapter 9, there's kind of an interlude with Philip in Samaria. We catch back up with Saul in Acts chapter 9, and this is what we read about him. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That word breathing, sorry, is a word worth paying attention to. It's, it's one of the few times that word's used. It implies that he is so filled with hatred and violence against the Lord's people that it's the air he's breathing in and out. He's so upset. That guy, who by the Bible's definition is committed to the murderous destruction of the Lord's disciples. Within one verse, he's calling Jesus Lord. Within one verse. Acts chapter 9, verse 5. Three verses later, he is completely obedient, following every instruction that Jesus gives him. Three verses later, 9 chapter 8. By 9 chapter, sorry, by chapter 9 verse 20, he is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And the key word there is, is. Not that Jesus was the Son of God, but that Jesus still is. And he's preaching that with boldness. So he goes back, Saul, who we know as Paul, he retells this story, the Acts chapter 10 story, a couple of times. And one of the places he retells the story is in Acts chapter 26. And I want you to listen to what he describes Jesus saying to him. And what you'll hear is that Saul, who we know as Paul, saw this as the moment in which he was totally and completely repurposed. Look at this with me. This is Acts chapter 26, but it's a summary of what happened. Now get up. This is Jesus talking to him. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by their faith in me. When he retells this story, it's about how he in an instant was repurposed by Jesus Christ. He goes from the persecutor to the servant of this man, the destroyer to the witness of this man. And it happens like this. How does that happen? Okay, to circle back up to that question, how would you repurpose a person? You and I just sense it's harder than repurposing a thing. And the reason is the difference, the difference you might say between underwear and us is meaning, meaning. Years ago, a guy named Viktor Frankl, have you ever heard that name? He was a Jewish psychiatrist. And he was for three years in concentration camps in Nazi Germany, one of those being Auschwitz. And he, as a psychiatrist, observed those imprisoned beside him or around him. And he really noticed two groups. There was those who would wither away and die very quickly. And then there was those who were resilient, who would somehow hang on. And he begins to conduct these interviews with the two groups, and he learns one thing, that the singular difference between those who wither and die quickly and those who are resilient is that they have purpose in their life. 
And that beneath that purpose, there is some kind of bedrock of meaning that they feel like their life is a part of something bigger. And that bigger thing gives them purpose and therefore reason to get up each day. And he wrote a book about it. And the book is called Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. Library of Congress says it's one of the 10 most important books ever written. But what he's saying is, and you know it to be true, that the difference between us and the things in our life is that we need meaning. We need it. What is it though? What is meaning? Let me define it here. I'm going to show you a picture. I think the best definition of meaning that, that I've come across uses two words. And if you're a note taker, you might write these two words down. They would say that meaning is the merger or the confluence of these two things, coherence and significance, coherence and significance. Let me explain that. Coherence is the sense that things make sense. Are you following with me? Okay. Like two plus two equals four, right? It is the sense that things add up. They go together. There's no holes in this. There is a sense of things. That's what coherence is. Things add up. And then significance. It's based on what adds up that we determine what has value or significance. So let me give you an example of this. You've got a dollar bill in your pocket. And that dollar bill is worth something, right? It's valuable. It's not worth a lot. Let's be honest. It's not worth a lot anymore. It's worth enough that you could go out there and buy some cookies at the bake sale right after this to raise money for Make-A-Wish. So you could do that with your dollar. Okay, why does that dollar have value? It has value because beneath that dollar is an economic system of the exchange of goods and services that you and I all buy into and admit that this thing is true and right and therefore that dollar has value and other things don't. I was thinking about this this fall. I was watching the leaves fall from my yard, onto my yard, and I was out there raking them for hours and hours and hours and I had bags and bags of leaves. And I thought to myself, like, why didn't we create a world in which leaves had value? <laughs> Think about it. You know, how much would that change your attitude or experience of going out there and raking and bagging leaves if you were just raking in wealth? I mean, think about that. And you had bags, wouldn't it change your perspective? And so you see what we, do, what we give value to is based on the system, the coherent system beneath that thing. So meaning is the confluence of what makes sense and what is valuable. You know what we call that? Truth. Truth. You with me? So what does that have to do with repurposing a person? Let me throw up this, this visual here on the screen for me. I'm gonna call this the person pyramid. I named it, I'm pretty proud of that. The person pyramid, we're gonna call that. Okay, look at this with me. Basically, I think each one of us, every person out there beyond those doors, every person you know in your life is living according to this pyramid, whether they know it or not. And so at the top of the pyramid is your daily activities. So the question beside your actions would be, what am I going to do today? So if you're a note taker and you're drawing this out, you might write that out to the side of this. What am I going to do today? Just simply what's next on the agenda? What am I doing today? But every once in a while, you go a little bit deeper. Something in your life causes you to ask the deeper question about what you're doing. And the deeper question, the, low, the level just below what we do every day is the level of purpose. The question there would be, what is my purpose in life? 
from which I determine everything I'm going to do that day, right? What, what is the reason I was made? What is my purpose in life? But sometimes there are things that push you to ask the even deeper question from which we get our purpose. And that deeper question is, what's the meaning of life? Okay, what's the big way that it all makes sense? The big truth on which I determine what's valuable and not. The big, deep truth from which I get my purpose in life. What is it? And we would call that meaning. All right, so why is this significant here? Well, real repurposing. Look at it with me. To really repurpose someone, you would have to change things on the level of meaning. Because it's from the level of meaning or truth that we derive our sense of purpose in life. You couldn't just change what they do. You couldn't just change the reasons for doing it. You got to change the fundamental truth on which their reasons for being exist. And so what happens here to Saul? Okay. His purpose in life changes in an instant, in an instant. He goes from persecutor to preacher in an instant, right? Preaching, proving that Jesus is the son of God, doing it boldly, fearlessly, powerfully, because his purpose has changed. He's become a servant, a witness. He's been sent by Jesus. He totally sees his life in a dramatically different way. He exists for a completely different reason. Why? And we would say it's because something has changed on his level of meaning of what is most true. So his purpose in life has changed in an instant because the meaning of his life has changed like that. So here's what we got to ask. What was it that changed the meaning of life for Saul? And the answer is one thing, the resurrected Jesus. That's it, the resurrected Jesus. Let me explain. And let me tread lightly here. Death, death is a real problem for us. I want you to think about this with me. Death is a real problem for us. And it's not just a problem for us in that it creates grief and sorrow in our life, which it most certainly does. But death is a problem for us on the level of meaning, on the level of what's most true, most valuable. Death is a real problem at that level. Paul who we first know as Saul, called death the last enemy. That's what he says about it. He says, like, of all the things trying to mess up our lives, the worst of them is death. And this is why, because death is like a giant jackhammer that comes into that foundational level of meaning and busts it up. And here's what I mean. The fact that things die, the fact that things decay and they fall apart and break apart and eventually pass away into nothingness, what that tells us is that the things I invest in, the things I see as valuable or as true, they won't last. And so the meaning is just sucked right out of them and they become meaningless. Why? Because of the power of death. Are you with me? This is why you've heard this before. We should eat and drink for tomorrow we what? 
die. Life becomes purposeless because death comes in and busts up the foundational truths on which our lives exist. Nothing lasts, so let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Okay. People of faith aren't the only people who've talked about this. Physicists and philosophers talk about this concept of entropy. Have you ever heard that word before, entropy? It's basically the idea that everything that's made whole and ordered eventually becomes disordered and finally dissolves. It comes and goes into nothingness. Let me give you an example, like toothpaste in the toothpaste tube, okay? Maybe you've heard like once you squeeze the tube, you can't get the toothpaste back in there. It's actually, it's actually worse than that. You squeeze the toothpaste out of the tube. It's not going back in. You put it on your toothbrush. You brush your teeth, swish it around, you know, spit it down the sink. It goes down into the sewers and eventually it dissolves into what? Nothing. It's no longer toothpaste. So this thing that starts whole and packaged and good is eventually nothing. Or let me give you a more concrete example, the human body. It's made whole, you know, you can touch it, it's solid, and eventually what's going to happen? It's going to turn to dust and decay. So death is a real problem. You might call it the ultimate wrecker of meaning. That's what it is. Okay. And so this is why, this is why so many people are hopeless and dissatisfied in life because at the level of meaning, it is all crumbling. And because of that, they have no purpose. So they don't have anything to guide them and anchor their lives, right? Because death comes in, whoever you might be, you can't escape it. It comes in and it just busts up everything we think is valuable and true and we're left with nothing. It's a hopeless thing. So Paul, or Saul, he thought, nah, there's one thing that could deal with it, though. He knows this is the real problem. In fact, as evidence that Saul knows death to be the destroyer of meaning, what is the weapon that Saul is using to try to destroy and undermine the early church? Death. Look at that. This is going to rob them of everything they think to be true. We're going to kill them, and they won't hold on to this anymore. But Saul still believed that there was one power in existence that was eventually going to deal with death, and that power was the power of God. And that someday, the distant future, at the end of times, God would raise those who belonged to him in new life. He thought that was the possibility. So that's the difference between Saul and the modern person who believes there's no hope for us in death. Saul thought there was hope. He just thought it was distant and far removed. But then he looks up one day on the road to Damascus, and he sees the guy they killed alive. And in an instant, everything that was coherent to him before is incoherent. Everything that made sense before no longer makes sense. And he realizes in that moment that if this man has beat death and he's done it right now, then he is meaning and truth and only him. He has dealt once and for all with the thing that destroys our meaning and life, he has destroyed that thing. And so he and only he gets to determine who I am and why I exist. And in an instant, he gives himself to him. Why? The resurrected Jesus. 
Jesus says, he says to his apostles and his disciples, he says, I, it's singular, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. You were to package those three terms together, what we might say there is, he is meaning. And only him. Why? Because he is risen indeed. That's why. That's why. And so I pray that your life, your life would be purposed in him. And that you would see and trust that this is the only truth on which to rest. I am the way and the truth and the life. May it be so for us. If you don't know Jesus and you want to build your life on him, I'd love to baptize you into Christ Jesus today. Why don't you come down after I pray. God, would you fill your people with your spirit as they leave this place? Would you enable them to, God, to just abide in what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, building their lives on the foundation of our risen Lord. And I pray this in his mighty name, the name that is above every name. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.